It's now my pleasure to introduce to you Maura McGinnis. She is a respected University of Virginia scholar and administrator, and as Althea said, she serves as our Vice Provost for Academic Affairs. She was previously Associate Dean for Undergraduate Programs and Professor of American Art and Material Culture in the College of Arts and Sciences. As an undergraduate student at the University of Virginia, she was a lawn resident, a Jefferson Scholar, an Eccles Scholar, and a Raven. Amazing. After earning a master's and doctorate degree at Yale, she joined the UVA faculty in 1998 and remains a professor in the McIntyre Department of Arts Art History Program. Her scholarship focuses on the cultural history of American art and the intersection of art and politics, especially as it relates to slavery. Her latest book, Slaves Waiting for Sale, won the 15th Annual Library of Virginia Literary Award for Nonfiction. So please join me in welcoming Maury McGinnis to kick off the first More Than the Score Lecture Series for the 2014-15 series. Well, good morning to you all. Can you all hear me even in the back? Great. Well, I'm very happy to be here with you this morning and to be able to share with you some of the new research that I and other faculties and a whole team of students um, and other people at the university have begun working on. And this is in many ways all in preparation for the bicentennial. So to kick us off this morning, I think it's always useful that uh, we turn to Thomas Jefferson as a starting point. And Jefferson reminded us that history by apprising them of the past will enable them to judge of the future. And that in many ways is what our project is about. That is to understand our own past better. Because we certainly all feel as if we know the University of Virginia extraordinarily well. I'm sure that many of you in the room are either alumni of the university or work here or have lived in Charlottesville for a long time. So it's a place we all feel very fond and fondly of and affectionate about. But there's so much about the intervening decades that we probably don't have a clear picture of. And that's part of what we are hoping to work on. So this morning, I'm going to introduce you to a new research project. It's been underway for about a year. Um, and it involves a lot of people. And we call it, the, in short, the Jewel Project, Jefferson's University, the Early Life Project. Um, and the goal of Jewel is to get all of the university's early history accessible to all of us. So most of the university's early history lives in the archives in handwritten 19th century documents. And it is everything from official university records to students and di uh, letters and diaries kept by students and letters and diaries kept by faculty members. But if you really want to understand the early history, you would have to sit down and start reading and keep reading probably for a decade or more in order to get through it all. So our goal is to get all of this transcribed, dig digitized, transcribed, and then marked up with XML coding so that you can go in and search for whatever it is that you might want to know more about. And at the end of my talk, I'll actually show you how to get into the database and how to do some searching so that you can start discovering this history for yourself. 
It is a large team of people working on this project. It has received funding from the office of the executive vice president and provost, who happens to be my boss. Um, and very, uh, we're very excited also to be able to say that this year we also received a large grant from the Jefferson Trust of the Alumni Association. So there's a, a lot of money to help support this project. Always in need of more, because this is going to take us many years to get through everything. We have a large group of students who are really doing the bulk of the work of this project. Very exciting work. All of this is being run through IAF, the Institute for Advanced Technology in the Humanities. Um, and they are the ones who help us humanists who have no idea how to do any of this kind of stuff. And they make the magic happen um, that is the website. And then, of course, we're obviously working very closely with the library as well, because all of the archival resources that we're talking about are in special collections. So we, we want to spend some time this morning um, helping you understand the university in its first few decades. Now, we're all familiar with Jefferson's ideal and really rather radical conception for the University of Virginia. His idea for an academical village dramatically departed from the way American universities were being constructed and the way in which education was taking place at that time. Many of you are probably very familiar with what was probably the most radical of his ideas, and that was that at the center of this institution would not be a chapel or a church, and nor would it be church-affiliated, as virtually every other university in America was at the time. Jefferson was himself the author of the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. He believed very strongly in the separation of church and state. And when he established a university, he thought it, be, it was very important that it be separate from religion. So rather than have a chapel at the center of his institution, he, of course, had the rotunda. And the rotunda served a number of purposes, primarily the home for the university library, a library for which Jefferson drew up the entire list of books that were to be purchased. It also served as the site for the chemical laboratories. Um, and only recently in the restorations have they rediscovered those chemical ovens still in the walls of the rotunda. And when the restoration is complete, you'll be able to see those. It's very exciting. As well as examination rooms when it was exam time and other meeting space. The other rather radical conception um, for Jefferson's University was what was to be taught there. You did not come to Jefferson's University to read to prepare yourself to be a minister, which is what was going on at most American universities. Instead, Jefferson wanted you to come and drink broadly of the knowledge that professors were providing in the classroom. And they were teaching some pretty radical stuff, like modern languages. At most institutions, you could go and be trained in Greek and Latin, but you didn't learn how to speak French and Italian and German. But Jefferson thought if America's next generation of leaders were going to be able to be citizens on a world stage, that they needed to be able to be culturally knowledgeable about the other nations of the world. And so Jefferson brought from Europe a large number of faculty to teach a wide range of disciplines. And then he wanted his students to come here and take what was essentially America's first liberal arts curriculum to study broadly across the different disciplines. 
Harvard was very interested in this idea, learned about it, but it took them about three or four decades to adopt the same curriculum themselves. They're a little slow on the, on the uptake. So this is the ideal, right, of the University of Virginia that we're all very familiar with. But the question is, what happened? Did that ideal work? When you introduced a bunch of students to this place, how'd that all work out? So that's what we're going to talk a little bit about this morning. So Jefferson placed the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia, because it was his backyard. It wasn't really the most logical place to put it. Charlottesville was really kind of the middle of nowhere, and there really wasn't much of a town here. It was a largely agricultural county with a relatively small population. And for much of its early history, it was still a fairly rural place. And Charlottesville itself was even a long way from the site of the University of Virginia. In the first few decades, this massive construction project of the University of Virginia, though rural, essentially creates a whole new city. And there are hundreds of people living here. And the construction of the academical village begins to expand as more people come. And there is a need to deal with all of the needs of the, many, uh, the several hundred people living here. And so part of what we're going to be talking about this morning is this growth over the first few decades. So we're going to start by figuring out who's in this community. Almost all the early gravings of the University of Virginia represented as a rather stark and not very populated place. But of course, it was a very populated place. So who's here? Who's living in the academical village in the early years? There are really three main groups of people. There are the faculty, and as I mentioned a moment ago, they're mostly from Europe. This was actually a point of contention with many of Jefferson's opponents who were appalled that we would bring in a bunch of Europeans to teach a bunch of Americans. Um, but it turned out that was where Jefferson could find the most highly trained um, faculty in the areas that he wanted taught. So you have about nine faculty here in the early years that will grow um, into the, the teens as the decades grow, go along. Um, you have the students, right? And then you have a very large population of people who are enslaved who are helping to make this place run because food has to be cooked and places have to be cleaned and labor in the 19th century South is almost entirely um, supplied by enslaved labor. So let me tell you a little bit about some of the students. And this is what one of the students wrote um, home to his family members. We have some of all ranks, from the highest to the lowest, both in birth and reputation. Some who come to this place for the purpose of prosecuting their literary pursuits. Some entirely seem to have forgotten what was their intention in coming to this institution or to have made a very great mistake in attempting to acquire knowledge. Instead of attending to their books, they are sauntering about from one day's end to another in all kinds of rascality and mischief. And we're going to learn a little bit more about their rascality and mischief, because it is quite something. And our project is wanting to help us learn those stories, right? But our project is also hoping to be able to help us tell the stories 
of people like Sally Cottrell Cole, a woman who was, in born, who was born enslaved at Monticello after Jefferson's death was owned by one of her granddaughters, his granddaughters. He, or she, and her husband moved ultimately to Massachusetts. Sally Cottrell Cole wished to remain in Charlottesville with her family. And so Jefferson's granddaughter arranged for her first to be hired and then owned by one of the University of Virginia faculty. He was an Englishman opposed to slavery and opposed to the behavior of the University of Virginia students and left after only two years. He then wanted to emancipate her. But the laws of Virginia required that if a slave were emancipated, they had to leave the state because they were very nervous about the presence of free African Americans among an enslaved population. And she wished to remain with her family. And so they arranged a situation where somebody owned her, but actually did not make her labor. And she was able to remain in Charlottesville near her family and with her husband, who was a free African American. And it's through the archives that you can piece all these pieces together. The Jefferson letters from, or the, uh, Jefferson's granddaughter's letters from the 1820s, the letters from Thomas Key in the 18, later in the 1820s, the letter uh, telling her later story decades later, and then a photograph and an entirely other collection um, of somebody who, family who had once uh, hired her as their nanny. And so it's the ability to kind of triangulate lots of pieces of information that are going to enable us to tell the story of many different people. And luckily, all of this intersects an important time in the university's history when the president has recently launched a commission on slavery and the university for us to understand our history better and then for us to figure out as a community how best that we should remember this, memorialize it, and make it part of our university's history. And the Jewell Project will certainly play an important role in the recovering of much of this history. So how are we going to do this? Well, much of what we have are needles in a haystack, right? You get all these little tidbits here and there. So for example, as you're going through the proctor's receipts from the early years of the construction of the university, where enslaved labor plays a really important role, you find a receipt for the hire of a boy named Robert. Well, many of the slaves who worked at the University of Virginia were hired from local slave owners. They were skilled in brick making and brick laying and carpentry, and they were brought to this massive construction site in order to help build the University of Virginia. And other receipts to the sheriff of Albemarle County paying taxes on the number of slaves who are working at the university or the university buying clothes for many of the men whom they had hired who were laboring at the University of Virginia. And by putting all this kind of information into databases, you're able to start to make connections. Because we see a lot of these names here, Willis, Squire, Jack, Jen, and Fleming. And they show up in other records as well. So we'll be able to hopefully reconstruct at least partial stories um, of lives. So let's talk about the university in its early years. So many of us are very familiar with the Maverick engraving. It's important for us to remember that Maverick engraving is not fully accurate. So one of the most important differences is you'll see all these walls 
near the, that seem to block off the hotels from the gardens. The walls actually do not um, block the hotels from the gardens because those are very important connections that you'll understand in a minute. So the university opens its doors March 7th, 1825 with only 63 students. And even though session has begun, the University of Virginia continues to accept new students. And before the end of the year, there are 125 here. But only a few months into school, there were clashes and riots between faculty and students. On one night in October, 14 masked students were loudly disruptive on the lawn. The faculty exit their pavilions, confront them. They were punched by the faculty, beaten with sticks. Bricks were thrown. Jefferson is distraught at this. His granddaughter writes, we have had a riot at the university two nights successively. Jefferson is very distressed, worried that the university before it has barely begun, might come crashing to an end. And he calls a meeting of all the students. Jefferson is an elderly man at this point. He's 82 years old. He was regularly in the habit of coming down to the University of Virginia. He was also regularly in the habit of inviting students to come dine with him at Monticello. And he is very distressed at this turn of events. And he stands up in front of the room ready to address the students. He is so overcome with emotion that according to some of the people in the room that day, Jefferson was unable to speak and sat down with tears streaming down his cheeks. Another member of the board of visitors stands up and appeals to them on their honor to come forward and identify themselves, that is, the students who were riding on the lawn. And according to one person who was there, it was not Chapman's words, it was Chapman who was speaking, but Mr. Jefferson's tears that melted their stubborn purpose. The first to come forward was one of Jefferson's own nephews. Jefferson was particularly distraught by this revelation. And the faculty expelled three students and admonished eight others. What had gone so wrong? Why did Jefferson's ideal not work. Well, I would say the biggest problem is this group over here on the left. <laughs> Most of the students at the University of Virginia were the sons of wealthy plantation owners. They had never been to school. They had been tutored at home. They had never been told what they could not do, really. They were, in many ways, young tyrants at their own plantations. They were masters. They were used to having their own way and telling others what to do. And they came to the University of Virginia, and suddenly many people were telling them what to do. And they were not happy with this. So let's talk about the space of the Academical Village and how these three groups are interacting and where the sites of contestation are. But to understand the University of Virginia, we actually have to turn our attention briefly to Monticello. Because Jefferson's architectural solutions at the University of Virginia are ones that in many ways he had played with and worked out at Monticello. Monticello is, of course, a plantation. And in many ways, it is useful to think about the University of Virginia as a plantation as well. It is a rural setting. And you've got an awful lot of domestic life that has to be provided for. 
At Monticello, Jefferson segregated labor and the work of domestic living out of sight from where the white family was living. And so Mulberry Row was the site of most of the labor that was going to need to take place, but it is not visible from the house. It is hidden away from the house. And at the University of Virginia, Jefferson also segregated the areas of labor and hid them away. So these beautiful gardens that we all love with their flowers and beautiful trees and serpentine paths and beautiful brick walls were not pleasure gardens when the university began its life. They were workyards. They were the location of all of the labor that needed to take place so that several hundred people could live in the middle of nowhere. And so these gardens, these zones, um, are the zones of labor. And they're hidden by the serpentine walls. And if you actually go into a garden today and stand there, you'll realize you can't see much else but the garden. And if you're walking down alleyways, you'll realize you can't see much of what is in the gardens, right? They are very segregated spaces. So our lovely gardens, not at all just places for leisure. And also important to remember that they've had a long history, right? Here are the East Gardens in the 1940s. You don't see any serpentine walls there, right? Most of the gardens as they exist today have been restored by the Garden Club of Virginia in what we can now call the colonial revival style, right? Very, the group that worked at Colonial Williamsburg worked at the University of Virginia as well. They are therefore very historically important, but not as the gardens of the original University of Virginia. They are instead very important as great emblems of colonial revival garden design. This is the work that went on in the University of Virginia gardens in the early years. The butchering of cows, the keeping, I mean, the butchering of pigs, the keeping of animals. There are a lot of people here to feed. You don't get to go to Harris Teeter and get your bacon shrink-wrapped ready to go, right? It starts like this. And in fact, Jefferson knew and knew that this is what these spaces would be for. He writes the Proctor in 1825, a smokehouse is indispensable to a Virginia family Therefore, they must be built for the professors such as require them. And by 1827, we know that all the pavilions had a smokehouse. Well, what do you do in a smokehouse? Well, you smoke pigs, right? And in order to do that, you have to butcher pigs. And you have to do it on site and on location because you're not going to haul a bunch of carcasses hundreds of yards to then hang it up in a smokehouse. So that's the kind of work that would have gone on in the backyard. And they probably had wood yards and dairies to keep your milk and butter cold, probably kept chicken coops, and lots of other structures to house animals and livestock. In addition, there were slave quarters added to many of the gardens, as well as um, quite a number of additional kitchens when those in the basement um, proved to be inadequate. Why did they prove to be inadequate? Well, as um, one of the professors wrote or complained in the Board of Visitors um, that one of the pavilions are so damp and unfinished that they are totally unfit to be inhabited. 
Um, and so we see the construction of lots of additional buildings in the garden space. And if you at all doubt that the keeping of hogs was a regular practice, um, you can look at the enactments of the 1840s where they pass an enactment that you can't keep hogs there anymore because as the population of the university grows, the keeping of livestock in course, close quarters um, becomes a little irritating to many. And so they pass an enactment not to keep hogs. I suspect some people continued. So for the pavilions and for the faculty, there is certainly the need for them to have enslaved labor, to cook their food, to clean their houses, to care for their children, and so forth. But the bulk of the work that's going on is that to provide for the many students, right? The students were provided for their meals in the buildings we refer to as hotels. They're not hotels as we think of hotels, such as room 311 over here. <laughs> Remember, if you dropped your 311 key, please see Althea at the end. The hotels were instead dining halls. And these are the larger structures, uh, three on each side in the ranges. The university contracted with hotel keepers. They were kind of independent contractors, um, the dining services of the day. And they required the hotel keepers to keep at least one slave for every 10 students they served. And hotel keepers usually had 50 or more students who were dining with them. But in addition to dining with them, there were many other services that the hotel keepers provided. Um, they cleaned their rooms, uh, brought them fresh water, and so forth. At about any one time, there were about 100 enslaved people living in the academical uh, village, owned by faculty, owned by hotel keepers, working for the students. And the work that is going on there is the preparation of food and the cleaning of clothes. Cooking is done over an open fire um, and perhaps sometimes outdoor, probably more commonly indoors in large cook kitchens. Many of these cook kitchens were in the basement of hotels. One of the hotel keepers complained that every time it rained, he had standing water in the cellar. Um, this was a common problem, making the kitchen on such occasions, as he wrote, uh, almost impractical to cook in. He also complained about Jefferson's fireplaces, as many did and have since. Um, being economical with flues is actually not a good idea, it turns out. Um, all of my fireplaces smoke badly, but the fireplace of my dining room smokes so much that in cold weather, we cannot, without suffering considerably, keep a fire during eating hours. In the basement of both the pavilions and the hotels survive many of these large original cook kitchens. Um, but some additional outdoor cook kitchens were added um, in order to move the cooking out of doors. This is one that survives behind Pavilion 3. Um, and we can see in the text a request from a faculty member to add another of these buildings. And as we go through the records, we find more and more mention of professors requesting an extension here, an additional building there, so that by the time we get to the 1850s, look at all these little buildings that are captured in this engraving. These are all the additions, and there probably were many more, because all of those are shown as brick, and many of them were wood. The gardens fill up with lots and lots of structures. 
Um, and as we do more archaeology, as we do more research, we'll hopefully be able to sort of create a map of how the university has changed over time. There are a few that survive. Um, the muse here um, and the, uh, I mean, the cracker box here and the muse that I showed you earlier. So why the tension between faculty and students? Well, it has to do with the enactments passed by the faculty. Enactments, a fancy word for rules of what you can and cannot do. And they passed a lot of these. The two most hated were the ones that told students what to wear and that rung the bell every morning at dawn expecting students to be at breakfast shortly thereafter. It w the rules would not let students wear clothes with material more than $6 a yard. What they were essentially doing was telling a bunch of rich people who wanted to wear their fancy satin silk suits that they had to wear a coarse wool fabric not much better than the Negro cloth given to enslaved people. That one they really hated. And they get in trouble all the time for being out of uniform in town. Because how are you going to impress the ladies in your University of Virginia uniform? And these restrictions spill into violence of all kinds. The University of Virginia in the early years is a very violent place. But actually, the American South in the 19th century is a very violent place. The violence took place between faculty and students, between students and students, and students on the enslaved workers in the university. And randomly going through documents, you run into duels all the time. So here's a duel that was, certain to take, that was planned to take place with rifles on rests, uh, a result which could not fail to prove highly injurious to the university. Throughout these early decades, the University of Virginia's success is actually not guaranteed. There continue to be people in the legislature working to defund the University of Virginia, establish a state university in a larger population place like Richmond. There are people who are opposed to this secular institution and what it's doing to America's youth by not being based in religion. So this kind of news, if it gets out, is definitely worrisome. On any random page of faculty minutes, you find recitations of a garden wall torn down, of cockfighting, um, the proctor remarking on these complaints, a riotous conduct last night. It just goes on and on. That riotous behavior sometimes spills out of the University of Virginia's precincts as well into the areas of the town. So, um, particularly a place that students like to get in trouble is the area down here where the new South Lawn buildings are currently located. There was a community there, a mixed community of free people, both free, black, and white. And they learn early on that they can make a lot of money from servicing the University of Virginia students. And that servicing is everything from selling them alcohol, which is forbidden, to letting them gamble, which is forbidden, to letting them um, go to cockfights, which is forbidden, um, to a variety of other things related to, uh, shall we say, women of ill repute, which is forbidden. Um, and this violence often spreads out into these areas. Um, and there is uh, lots of examples of that in the archives. So if you are interested in learning more about some of this history yourself, I'd like to introduce you to our website. Now, 
please be patient with us and know that we're in the early stages of website development. And the ease of its use and what is available there will continue to increase. Um, you can go to the search function. And on the search function, if you wish to find an individual, you can type in a name and search. And from that will come up all the people with that name. So the first thing we had to do is figure out who's our universe of people. And so we went through all the roles of all the students and entered all the students and the sessions they were here. And then they all get their own little ID number. And then as we go through the records, the students, when they run into the name of one of the students, they then tag it with that person's ID number so that you can then always find. So here we are, Mr. L.A. Washington, who's in a record related to um, an event type. We also label things according to what happened. So this is a student misconduct destruction of property. Um, there are lots of those. Um, and you can see here uh, that Mr. Washington and some of his buddies um, are misbehaving in many ways. Or if you are particularly interested in learning more about the different kinds of misbehavior or finding good examples of them, you can go to the advanced search and scroll through our event types. So we have a lot about the curriculum. If you want to know about how the teaching of Greek changes over the decades, you'll be able to find out about that. Or you get to my favorite little section, student misconduct where you can then find student misconduct with, take your choice, drinking, gambling, uniform violation, verbal assault, physical assault, destruction of property, guns, um, so on and so forth. And let's say you go to guns and search. And this is how many we have so far. And <laughs> we're really in the very early stages, kind of only in the early 1830s through one archival source. So, um, as you can tell, the students at the University of Virginia um, found many ways to entertain themselves. The other thing that we are hoping to do, in addition to understanding the lived experience at the University of Virginia, is to understand how the physical place changed as well. right? Because as we go through, we're also tagging things for places. And so every time a change is made to Pavilion 5, we will eventually be able to go through and find every mention in every different source. right? Or if you want to know every time something kind of funky happens in a garden, you'll be able to search on garden. And so to be able to do that, we have students who are working on building for us a virtual University of Virginia. And we will begin with the University of Virginia at the time of its completion. And we will then eventually, we hope, be able to do a, a sort of change over time series as well. Building these virtual models is almost like building the University of Virginia. There is nothing that automatically populates um, these buildings. Our students who are working on this and the staff at IAF do an enormous amount of research in the historic drawings, Jefferson's drawings, beginning with Jefferson's drawings current drawings of the buildings, looking at the historic structures reports, going to the documents, measuring themselves when there are some discrepancies between 
the measurements that Jefferson provided and where they are today, paying very close attention to architectural details, and then building all of that so that you get extraordinary detail. We are also going to then be creating a larger landscape. We're not fully there yet. Uh, placing it on what we know of the land, because the land has also changed over the years, and it gets built up piece by piece. You have to, uh, it's sort of like building with Legos, um, but then eventually you have to put skin on things, right? So where we're moving, and know that this is early days, um, is building up the University of Virginia. And let me just give you a sense. We only have three pavilions on the landscape at this point. Um, but of what we will be able to do, um, peeling back the modern additions to all these buildings. You'll notice the capitals aren't there yet on Pavilion 3 because we still have to uh, laser measure those in order to get those correct. I'm saying a lot of we. I'm doing none of this. Um, <laughs> it is really our great team of students and, um, and the staff at IAF who are making all of this possible. But we'll eventually be able to go in and add the garden spaces, the rest of all the buildings, so that you on the site one day, this is probably a long way away, will be able to fly through the University of Virginia um, and drive where you want to go on your own and to be able to experience these spaces. We haven't had the conversation yet of whether we're going to add smoke houses and hog butchering. Um, I would love to be able to do so. I don't know whether we can actually accomplish that. Um, but you know. 19th century lived life was a messy, dirty thing. And we walk through these very manicured gardens and spaces today, and it's hard to recapture the noise and the smell and the sounds that were there in the 19th century. And, and this is part of what we really want to enable all of uh, anybody who's interested to be able to experience. We want to understand this place and the history of this place. Um, I'm happy to take any questions, and thank you for listening. There's a, um, apparently a plethora of information, or maybe not quite that much, but anyway, about the buildings. I'm really interested in those garden spaces right. because you talked a lot about livestock and that sort of thing, but they also had to grow their food there, did they not? Early on, they are using those spaces, I think, especially for kitchen gardens. The university also gives them land sort of surrounding the academical village um, where they measure off land for um, the pavilion, I mean, for the professors and the hotel keepers. So that's why I mean it's important to think of this place as a plantation because there's nowhere to go to just buy a whole bunch of what you need to feed all these people. So an awful lot of that, and especially in the early decades, it will develop more as, the, as, the, as Charlottesville grows. But in the early years, you're having to do almost everything here and local. So yeah, they're growing food, they're keeping livestock um, so that everybody can be fed. Yes? What was the age range of students? Some of them come quite young. Um, you know, there is no official schooling, so many of the young men are as young as 16 when they come into the early 20s. That one they right might here. come for one year, they might come for longer. It's, it, you know, it's very erratic 
in the early years. I was struck by the date on the Maverick drawing because it's 1822. The university had not yet opened, and yet it shows the ranges and the hotels. Did right. Jefferson design them? Uh, Jefferson, Maverick is doing it from Jefferson's designs. And so it is a vision of what the university will be, not what the university is at that moment. Uh, the university doesn't really complete construction until 1826 with the completion of the rotunda, which is the last thing finished. Since uh, Mr. Jefferson attended William and Mary, how did the early University of Virginia compete for students with William and Mary, which would have been the older, perhaps even, well, certainly more prestigious school at that point? Correct. Um, so, you know, Jefferson went to William and Mary, was, um, I think, very influenced by what he had seen there. And in fact, much of his design for the University of Virginia is in opposition to the William and Mary. But I won't go on about that, um, although he did describe it as a bunch of brick kilns. Um, <laughs> so, UVA had a hard time competing for students with William and Mary early on. I mean, the, the enrollments at UVA for decades are really quite anemic um, and had not achieved at all, I think, what Jefferson's vision had been. And it's not really until after the Civil War that the university really starts to see an explosion in the number of students. One right here. How long did it take to get to the 500 student and then the 1,000 student mark? Excellent question. 500s after the Civil War. I don't know when it hits 1,000. It would have been in the 19th century, um, but I don't know the exact date. Is there anybody in the room who does? Do you know, Brian? Is it before the war? So we get to 500 before the war? Right. But not to 1,000 before the war. Yeah, 900 by 1900, Brian Hogg, who's our preservation architect, thanks. Uh, takes a while. Yes? Uh, how did Jefferson ob obtain the land for the university originally? They bought it. Uh, from different people, or was it? John Perry. Right, so the, the farm was at one point owned by James Monroe, then by John Perry, and then the university buys it from John Perry. It was farmland. Right here. Uh, speaking of influences, how, this may be too broad, but how was Jefferson influenced positively and negatively by the examples of European universities? He had, I mean, he definitely was. Um, certainly architecturally, there is much in his development of a U-shaped university that is resonant with the colleges at Oxford and Cambridge, right? But he made some real changes to that because those are almost entirely quads. They close off and they have a chapel in the center, right? So while influenced by that, he's making really radical changes. And those are all still um, largely based in church and the teaching of religion and theology and he's moving very far away from that curriculum. And those are mostly set curriculum where you go, everybody does Greek, everybody does Latin, everybody does theology, um, and his curriculum was really quite radical. Was there an enrollment process back then and was tuition charged? There was tuition. Um, and I think the enrollment process was you showed up. 
And paid the tuition, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, what? Mostly. And certainly merchants and medical doctors and lawyers and professionals. But for the most part, it was pretty expensive. Uh, the state's subsidy for the University of Virginia was flat for decades, right? So even though it became more expensive to run the place, the university didn't get any more money from the legislature. Huh. Yeah. And so, huh, tuition then had to go up. Hmm. Um, so it was, it was considered, you know, a relatively expensive thing, and there wasn't any financial aid. So most of the people who were here were people who had the financial resources to do so. Um, or would be somebody like Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe, who was here a very short period of time, uh, really, you know, a year, uh, because he couldn't afford to come back. Uh, how, how long was it before the university actually produced scholars? Well, what's your definition of a scholar? <laughs> well, I, I'm thinking on, on, the, on my feet now. When did they start granting degrees? What's the actual year they do that? Roughly speaking. 30s? Yeah, I think it's in the 1830s. So Jefferson's radical conception for a curriculum that you come and study that which you are interested in studying might mean that you would come here for a year, you would master what you needed to do in mathematics, and that was all you were interested in, you would leave, and that was fine, right? Or you might stay three years and do mathematics, modern languages, um, and anatomy. So that's why we often you know, say that we use the terminology first year, second year, third year, um, and why the early university did not grant degrees. Early students at the University of Virginia began clamoring for degrees, and they come in somewhere, I think, in the early 1830s, because they felt like they needed proof, you know, something you could check off um, in order to show that you were a graduate of the University of Virginia. And they, but I would say from early on, they were still producing scholars, because you had to present, in what they called public day, um, an oration related to the work you were doing as a student. And everybody had to sit down in their classes and pass final examinations. And much of what you can also find in all of the records um, that you can search on Jewel are who got firsts and seconds in the various different subject matters. Or the students who were being called forward for what they called academic lassitude. And that was not showing up for class. We've got one more question, and keep in mind, Maury will be sticking around to sign books afterward. I'm surprised you didn't mention the shooting of a faculty member by a student on the lawn. Yes, it was because time was getting short, <laughs> and I was running over. Um, so the riots, the, the, there was a really serious series of riots in 1836. And then, every year, they had celebrations of the anniversary of the riot and would have another one. Um, and in 1840, those culminated in the shooting of Professor John Davis. Now, university lore will tell you that Professor Davis was shot in 1840, and in 1842, the students got together and passed the honor code. Guess what? Not true. In 1841, the faculty began complaining about students cheating on examinations and assignments. And in 1842, the faculty pass 
a requirement that students must sign a certificate attesting on their honor that they have not cheated. This is what happens sometimes when you learn about your history. Sometimes your mythologies fall. What happened in the university when the war broke out? Oh, yeah. So eventually during the Civil War, the university gets down where they only have a few dozen students. Uh, the university ends up being a hospital. Um, so the place isn't empty during the Civil War, but it's close to empty of students. It does not close, however. Not really. Nothing significant. So the university is safe, luckily. There are a few stories, but we don't have clear agreement, right, on how the buildings get saved. Do you want to tell the stories? You probably know them better than I do. <laughs> Can we get him a microphone? This is Brian Hogg, the university's preservation architect. Custer brought an army to Charlottesville, and the faculty. <laughs> Sorry, Custer had an army come to Charlottesville, and was met at the gates of the university by the faculty, and through some negotiation, and you, different people used different verbs, um, the university was protected by Custer's army as the war went around the town. That's good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.